Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Throughout the month of June, 3CR is running a station appeal. We're asking you, the listener, to donate to keep the station going. 3CR relies on the support of our listeners, but we know that many of you are doing it hard. So if you can't, we get it. But if you can, head to 3cr.org.au to make your tax-deductible donation to the 3CR Station Appeal. commentary and music. I'm your host for the next hour, Iris. Thanks to Encyclopedia for the previous hour of broadcasting. You're tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au, on digital radio and later on demand and podcasted. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nations, whose land... This show is produced on Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded and resistance led by First Nations people against genocide and colonisation is ongoing across so-called Australia. And and yeah, from that note, we had the recent Black Lives Matter Stop Black Deaths in Custody protests. There's been over 435 Black Deaths in Custody in so-called Australia since the Royal Commission in 1991 and massive Amazing rallies. I was there in solidarity and, yeah, amazing job by the organisers. And they definitely did everything they can, despite the media BS, um, in terms of, yeah, playing into ideas that the protesters didn't know what they're doing and they weren't taking precautions. Everything was done so well. Never gone to such a, like, a mall, I've never gone to a mall that has like handing out masks and hand sanitizers like the protest did. So yeah. Anyway, so I'm going to play a bit of 3CR's broadcast on the Black Five Matters Stop Black Deaths in Custody protests. That was on last Saturday. Um, a reminder to get behind the GoFundMes of Deaths in Custody's families, like Justice for Joyce is one of them. Look that up on GoFundMe. And this is Mariki Onis speaking. And Mariki is a member of the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance. Today, Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance called the Black Lives Rally protest in response to George Floyd's death. And I'm just going to read you out our media release. I can't breathe. The words of George Floyd as he was being murdered by the police in Minneapolis resonated painfully with Aboriginal people as so many of our own have died at the hands of racist police and prison guards here in so-called Australia. 
We stand in solidarity with our brothers and sisters, our siblings fighting for justice and freedom in the United States of America and everywhere else in the world. In New South Wales, Dungari man, David Dungai Jr, was held down by five prison guards, also yelled, I can't breathe, more than 12 times. Not one officer even faced disciplinary action for Dungay's murder, and his family is still waiting for justice. <laughs> Racist policing practices are lethal. In 2017, Victoria, Yorta Yorta woman, Annie Tanya Day, was subjected to racist policing practices and systemic racism which caused her death. In 2004, Queensland man Mularinji Dulmaji was likewise subject to racist policing practices and then murdered in custody. No one was brought to justice for his murder either. In 2019, both Joyce Clark in Western Australia and Kumanjai Walker in the Northern Territory were shot by police, shot to death by police. In New South Wales, in South Australia, Wayne Fallon Morrison in Western Australia, Miss Dew in Victoria, Veronica Nelson, all died in custody as a result of outright negligence. At the, on the part of police and corrections officers. In 2017, Tani Chatfield's death in custody at the Tamworth Correctional Centre was ruled su suicide despite conflicting evidence to the contrary. TJ Hickey, New South Wales. Ray Thomas, Jr., Victoria. Both died while being pursued by rabid police against their own policing procedures of non-pursuit. Jesse Edwards was murdered on the streets in Swan Hill and his family was still fighting for justice. His racist killers have not been brought to justice. Had all these people been white? They would no doubt be still here. These deaths are among the latest in a long line of deaths in custody in the United States and Australia. Since the Royal Commission in 1991 into Aboriginal deaths in custody, 400, and it says 32 on my piece of paper, but I believe it's 435. As we speak about this, people are dying. No one has ever been convicted for the death of an Aboriginal person at the hands of Australia's racist police and correctional system. Not one person! Aboriginal people and other racialised people are subjected to police brutality and racist policing practices every single day and we've had enough. <laughs> Australia and the US are both violent colonial racist regimes built on the genocide of indigenous people and the theft of our lands. The police uphold these systems through the ongoing violent policing practices which sees both Indigenous and African Americans fill prisons and be murdered at the hands of these violent states. Black Lives Matter! And that was Mariki Onis speaking. What a powerful rally that was of tens of thousands, hundreds of, hundreds of thousands across the country. You can find the rest of 3CR's live broadcast of the rally at... 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. You're tuned into Queering the Air on 3CR, and in terms of the rest of the show, we're going to be hearing from Sam Elkin about a new legal project 
named after the late sociologist, sex worker, rights and trans rights activist Roberta Perkins, launching this Monday, which is tomorrow, as this goes to air, on the 14th of June. We will then be following in that vein a bit and hearing more about the life and legacy of Roberta Perkins from Elena Jeffries and Cameron Cox. These were interviews I did last year. Uh, Finally, we'll be switching a bit to... Yeah, I've noticed a lot more people are talking about the violence of policing and radically transforming society in terms of abolishing police, defunding police. And one of my favorite resources on this subject, which is also um, being broadcast on 3CR, is Transformative Justice Radio. And yeah, I'm going to play excerpts from them later in the show. But first, Sam Elkin. I'm joined by the coordinator of the LGBTIQ Legal Service in Victoria, Sam Elkin. Thanks for joining me on Queering the Air. Would, is there Thanks anything, for having me. Is there anything else you'd like listeners to know about yourself? Uh, no, I'm um, yeah, a lawyer, um, community activist, like to get involved in writing and stuff like that. But yeah, here today to talk about the launch of the Roberta Perkins Law Project. Yes, Roberta Perkins was a sociologist, sex worker and trans rights activist who died in 2018. Could you tell us a bit about your your relationship to knowing or knowing about Roberta Perkins? Yeah, well, I actually didn't know much about the life and legacy of Roberta Perkins prior to a um, visioning day we had when we first initiated the project. We invited a whole bunch of trans and gender diverse people living um, in Melbourne and Victoria to um, a visioning day, which we held at Drummond Street to discuss what we wanted from the um, trans and gender diverse law service and what we wanted to call it. And um, one of the participants suggested Roberta Perkins um, as a name to honour. And um, it was through that I learned um, a lot about her, that she was a trailblazing Australian sociologist, writer and transgender um, and sex worker activist. So I've now um, ordered a bunch of her books online and, yeah, I've learned so much about her history and I'm really, really proud to honour it through this project. Awesome. Um, So was this visioning, so that was the origins of the Roberta Perkins Law Project. Could you talk more about those origins? Yeah, so um, we started a, a... LGBTIQ Legal Service um, Health Justice Partnership with Thorn Harbour Health back in 2018. And um, we, from there, it became pretty clear that different parts of the LGBTIQ community have different legal needs and live in different places and, you know, require different kinds of support. So we're really keen to partner with Transgender Victoria to provide a dedicated trans and gender diverse legal project that we do hand in hand with Transgender Victoria. So that's... Um, I guess a bit about the origins of the project. We really wanted to partner with them and we got some funding through the City of Melbourne to launch a one-off project. So we got a bit of funding for a part-time lawyer. So um, once we got that funding, we had a visioning day to try and um, determine what it is that the community wanted us to focus on in terms of doing community law. And um, so we've actually been running it for about eight months now and um, we're just finally getting around to officially launch it. So, yeah, that's a bit about the background of the project. Okay, great. Um, so in terms of some of the needs, what are some of the needs that it's addressing? So we've done a lot of casework around discrimination in healthcare um, and also discrimination in employment. So we've taken... Um, people through the uh, Human Rights Commission processes, taking them through the Human Rights List of VCAT. So a lot of discrimination stuff. Um, and there's also been quite a few um, prisoners, so trans and gender diverse people that are incarcerated um, have reached out to our project for legal support around, again, around discrimination, but also access to healthcare. So um, access to gender affirming healthcare in prisons can be really difficult at times. So we've been doing some casework around that as well. Okay, cool. Yeah, really, really important area there. Um, not necessarily something that's talked about that much in terms of incarceration of transgender diverse people um, who experience multiple oppressions often. Um, what can be expected at the event that's happening 
this Monday, this coming Monday? Yeah, so on Monday, um, we're having a bunch of speakers. So Geraldine Feller, who is a um, historian from Monash University, uh, Geraldine will be telling um, everybody a bit about the history and legacy of Roberta Perkins. They've um, dug through the archive of Roberta Perkins, which is held at the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives. So we'll present a kind of short paper on that. We'll have um, Eurydice Aroni, who's from Sydney, talking about... um, a little bit about uh, Roberta Perkins' legacy also as a trailblazing sex worker activist and um, I suppose just providing a bit of a personal um, word as somebody who knew um, Roberta Perkins very well and was very close with her. Um, we'll have, I think, Sally Goldner from um, Transgender Victoria is going to speak as well and I'll say a few words about doing the lawyering on the ground over the last nine months and what the legal needs are and, you know, provide some, I suppose, thoughts on what still needs to happen in terms terms of the courts, judicial systems, um, you know, government agencies, look, all sorts of things that could be done to meaningfully um, improve the health outcomes and lives and equality um, for trans and gender diverse people living in Australia. Okay, great. Um, how can listeners find um, out about registering for the event? Yeah, so we've got um, a Facebook page now, which is just called Roberta Perkins Law Project. So if you jump on there, you'll be able to find the details. Or if you um, just Google Roberta Perkins Law Project and Eventbrite, we've got an Eventbrite listing for it. So you'll be able to find it there as well. And it's going to be on um, on Monday and um, from 3.30 to 5 p.m. Okay, great. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to mention or talk about? I hear you're producing a new podcast. Yeah, yeah. I've been um, a bit busy lately, so I'm also um, producing a new podcast, which is called Transdemic, which is going to be um, having a look at the experiences of trans and gender diverse people living in Australia during the pandemic. Um, it's been yeah, an absolute privilege getting to hear everybody's diverse perspectives. So hopefully listeners will find it really interesting. We're going to release the first episode of that on the um, 20th of June and it'll just be available wherever you get your podcast. So um, yeah, please do download it. Yeah, I look forward to that. Um, yeah, that's all I had. Thanks for joining me on Queering the SM. Great, thank you. And that was Sam Elkin, coordinator of the LGBTIQ Victoria Legal Service, based in the St Kilda Legal Service. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's Voice of Dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au or on 3CR Digital in Melbourne. Now we're going to hear from two interviews that covers a bunch of sex worker social movement history, but focuses on the life and legacy of Roberta Perkins, first with Elena Jeffries and second with Cameron Cox. These are from June 2019. I'm joined on the line with Felina Jeffries, who has been, who has been involved in sex work organising for over 20 years and is currently the full-time state coordinator of Respect, Inc. in Queensland and has written a PhD. And we're going to be talking about um, the life and legacy of Roberta Perkins and touching on some current campaigns. Um, thanks for joining me on 3CR Community Radio, Querying the Air. Oh, thank and, you for ha- thank you for having me, Iris. Uh, and just and also, um, Roberta is Roberta Perkins passed away last a year ago, and she was a sociologist, sex worker, rights and trans rights activist. So, where would you like to start? <laughs> and a friend of yours, yeah. What are your yeah. memories and knowledge? Oh, look, Roberta was such a dear friend and mentor. Um, I feel extremely lucky to have spent so much time with her, um, mostly during the early noughties. And, yeah, um, so, well, she was larger than life. She had a massive personality, uh, lots of opinions. She was very firm in her belief about rights for sex workers and rights for trans people. She was very, she was unwavering in that sense, and you can see that thread through her work from the early mm. 70s right up until she died. It was her lifelong passion um, and she really lived it with everything that she did. Um, so in that sense, 
she was an incredibly inspiring person and to my to younger activists including myself and I kind of made it my mission to introduce a lot of younger activists to Roberta it was very inspiring to know that people live their whole life doing activism and being passionate about these issues and it, it never it never wanes and it never lets up and in some ways that is kind of a surprise because we think, oh, we're going to achieve all these mm. things and then move on. But I think um, reflecting on Roberta's life, we we get that long that picture of longevity of social issues that that don't really resolve. You know, we haven't resolved any of these issues despite so many amazing activists having made it their lifelong goal from the sixties onwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the reasons um, I'm interested in Roberta is, yeah, there is so, like, so much of that activist history isn't, a lot of it isn't recorded, but Roberta, a lot of it's recorded through Roberta's archives and she was someone that that comes up and and made it into the, like, the treacherous place of university where it's very hard um, to be um, doing... Community, more community-orientated research on sex worker lives and trans lives. Um, but maybe we should start um, er, like earlier on in the 70s? Yeah, definitely. So, And it really is the beginning of this story for Roberta. Well, early, late 60s, early 70s, she was doing sex work um, in, in the bar above the lay girls' um, big performance space. So... There was kind of, it was multi-story, the, um, that bar that lay girls performed in, in King's Cross. And there, as well as there being a stage and performance area, there was an upstairs bar that um, uh, trans sex workers would kind of work out of just sitting, like just sitting next to clients and doing little hand jobs under the table and things like that. So Roberta saw a lot of her clients that way as well as a fair bit of street-based work at that time in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, but really, Roberta, this, the activism story to do with sex work and really the activism story, not just of Roberta's, but for all of us, was in June 1975 when sex workers in Lyon in France, mm-hmm. um, they'd been running a string of protests and occupations, none of which had gained mainstream um, visibility. Um, but they, in, in June 1975, it was their third big protest, they occupied a church in Lyon, um, which at the t- time was like central city Lyon, like it's right on the water, it's in the middle of everything. It's a big old Gothic church. And um, when they occupied that church, there was a lot of left-wing media attention and a lot of um, kind of high-profile social progressives that were giving the protest visibility and it broke through the main, into the mainstream media. So that occupation ended up on front pages, newspapers all over the world and on TV and on radio um, and Roberta was part of the group in Sydney who organised a phone-in into the um, occupation in France. And I, Roberta would tell this story to me again and again, and I, I loved hearing it every time, how when herself and her little kind of gang of sex workers with opinions in King's Cross in Sydney in 1975 saw that sex workers were protesting and occupying churches in France, um, they were amazed and surprised. I mean, to that point, mm-hmm. they really had felt alone like they were the only group in the world that was doing this all on their own. And seeing that and then phoning into the protest, the occupation itself and actually having communication with the sex workers that were in there and talking about their campaign messages and talking about the strategies and talking about what led to this point and... It really opened up that international landscape of the sex worker movement 
it brought sex worker organisations from all over the world together because it triggered the very first World Whores Conference that was either in 78 or 79, I think, um, and Roberta was one of the people from Australia along with Dame Shirley Bates who went over to that conference and then actually met all of the people that they were talking on the phone with in person. Um, so it triggered something big for Roberta around solidarity. Um, mm. I know that it gave her the courage and the, um, the buoyancy to you know, to double down on her opinions about sex worker rights. You know, we're doing the right thing. Campaigning to end police involvement in sex work is um, is the right thing to be doing. And, and the, the thread of that message was across every uh, Western continent and also across Southeast Asia. Sex workers in Thailand were coming up with... Were, went to the World Horse Congress with the same demands. Sex workers from um, like Latin American countries were at that Congress raising the same things. Um, yeah, so 1975 meant a lot to her and it actually means a lot to all of us because, I mean, those sex workers in Lyon, they weren't necessarily coming from a place of social empowerment. Mm. They were coming from a place of being really crushed by the police for many years. And one of the earlier protests, the police pretty much gathered them up and surrounded them and instead of letting them march on the route that had been approved for them to march on, they marched them straight into the detention centres that are underneath the main square of the Leon City and just held everybody overnight for example. Mm. So their protest action, as well as the fact that many of their colleagues were being arrested, sent to jail, having their kids removed and, you know, everything that we know happens today still, um, they also were fighting against what seemed to be a completely impenetrable social stigma that meant not only are the police doing these terrible things, but they're just... that nobody cares and... We protest it and nobody cares, yeah? But yeah. When, the, when people, when it happened and hit that mainstream and, uh, and other sex worker groups were networking together and then finally kind of creating that um, first moment of the modern international movement, um, it, it gave every, everybody, I think, felt more legitimate in what they were demanding, um, it may be that my next-door neighbour and the cop down the road hates everything I do, but I know that the sex workers in San Francisco, in Bangkok, in Sydney and in Paris all have the same beliefs as I do. And, I'm, and even in the face of intense local stigma and discrimination, I'm going to be that rowdy hooker that is going along to the public meetings, that is writing submissions to government and is just keeping up the fight even without any kind of gaining any... Um, well, not only did Roberta not gain any social status out of it, it really... She, um, she, she, she never really had any social status um, and I think her campaigning meant... Like, it did have a negative long-term impact on her life. She copped mm -hmm. discrimination all the time, um, but we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, yeah, definitely the early days um, from 1975 onwards, she was of the view that this is an international movement, these are relevant social demands, um, and just to keep on keeping on and making people listen. Yeah, and the time of that this is broadcast is June 2nd, which... Um, which is now an international sex worker rights day. Do you want to just talk a, about how that's evolved from 1975? Yeah, so this is a 2nd of June, International Horse Day, is the commemoration of the day the sex workers um, occupied the church in Lyon. Um, and they occupied it for 10 days before the police went in in the middle of the night with batons and, and bashed everyone up and, and arrested them. Um, and during that 10 days, they pretty much, it was like 
international media central. They hosted press conferences every day. They had journalists and researchers and people travelled from other countries. Journalists travelled from other countries around Europe just to go to the occupation so they could interview the sex workers for their network. So it was a huge um, 10-day event. Um, and yeah, so today on the 2nd of June that we're going to air, it is the day that we celebrate it each year. Um, and a big part of the celebration is remembering the history. Um, Roberta loved this day. She, um, every year, rain or shine, she would go along to the whatever the local event was in Sydney for International Horse Day. She was often a speaker at those events, um, telling that story of what it felt like the first, the very first time she opened the paper and saw the story and just thought, whoa, we've got to get these people on the phone um, and what it was like talking to them and the impact it had on her. Um, and I think it's also a good day to remember, you know, how little we've moved on as well. There's that mm. aspect too. There's a slight sadness to it. Um, police brutality is still, you know, is unchanged very real in sex workers' daily work-wise. Um, this is, you know, in France, conditions are probably worse now than they were in mm. 1975. Um, the anti-trafficking agenda, which has come more to play since the kind of early 90s, um, has really ramped that up to be a full-scale war on whores, um, you know, across the board, the deliberate conflation of trafficking and sex work, um, which gives police a free kick all the time um, and is just so relevant in any every country on the globe, unfortunately. Mm. So, yeah, 2nd of June, we remember um, and we talk about the future as well. Yeah, for, sh yeah, for sure. Um, so now, talk now going back to maybe... The later in the seventies and into the eighties, Roberta getting involved in a number of collectives and being involved in significant history in New South Wales. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Look, I won't. I won't cover in detail the eighties with Roberta. I want to. Can I alert listeners to yeah. the? Um, it's online now. The interview that Eurydice yeah. Aroni um, did with women on the line, and Eurydice really talked in detail about what the 80s looked like. Eurydice spent a lot of time with Roberta during the 80s. But to give it a short summary, um, Roberta was instrumental in a number of, well, first of all, the trans collective that set up Tiresias House, now known as the Gender Centre in Sydney, and also the Australian Prostitutes Collective, um, which kind of morphed into Swap. Swap New South Wales really carries that history now. Um, and Roberta, I mean, there was a lot of people involved, obviously, with every collective. There's okay. a lot of kind of, you know, there's so many volunteers behind the scenes. But Roberta was one of the people that was prepared to put her name and face to it. So she was often seen in the public sphere representing those two groups. She was often the one that would go to the meetings with politicians. Her name would be signed on the checks, those kinds of things. Um, so, yeah, Roberta, the 80s was a real high time for her because she was achieving a lot of the things she'd set out to achieve. Selena Jeffrey speaking to me in mid-2019. You can find more of that interview at queeringthear at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. 
Keon's brand new track, Better Things. Definitely check out her music. This month is 3CR's Station Appeal, and we need your support to get going. Obviously, it's a pretty messed up time in the pandemic, but if you have your dollars, definitely put them, if you have your spare dollars, definitely put them into Radical Radio. It'll keep programs like Queering the Air going. Next, we're going to hear from Cameron Cox from the Sex Worker Outreach Project New South Wales also in June 2019. I'm joined on the line with Cameron Cox from the Sex Workers Outreach Project, New South Wales. Thanks um, for being on 3CR Community Radio, Queering the Air. We're, we're going to be talking a little bit about the life and legacy of sociologist, sex worker rights and trans rights activist Roberta Perkins. Um, where would you like to start on, on Roberta? Um, it's difficult to know where to start with Roberta. Roberta was a really remarkable person and she trailblazed in a way that is in itself um, remarkable and inspiring at a time when trailblazing in the area of sex work and trans rights was difficult for anyone and Roberta combined those two identities and fought um almost viciously hard for those two communities um, against great opposition and managed to get the government on side. And not only did she manage to um, start um, what's now the Gender Centre and get funding for trans people when um, they were... And people were considered by the general public to be some sort of mutation or abomination that shouldn't even exist. Um, she also managed to get um, sex worker rights moving and to get a government um, inquiry into sex work um, law reform. Yeah, yeah, such an amazing So, yeah, person. really incredible. Um, and especially if you knew the context or... Li- I think you had to live in the context of the times, which I did. Um, you know, sex work was um, criminalised. The, there was a corrupt police force who basically ran sex work and the brothels, and you didn't have any redress if anything happened to you. And if you did say anything, you ended up, as I did, at one stage on the um, floor of Forbes Street Police Station... Um, having your ribs broken by copper's boots. And, you know, that, those sort of things were a real risk. And if you were somebody like Roberta, Roberta was a very tall, large person, and wearing a dress and striding along the streets of King's Cross, she was really, she might as well have had a target um, painted on her back. So she was a very brave person personally and politically. Yeah. Um, does anything about Roberta's life sort of inform how you do the work you're doing today? Um, Elena Jeffries um, yeah. spoke to me and said that like she was uncompromising and like wouldn't settle for a position that would leave other people behind. Yes, Roberta was completely uncompromising. Um, look, I I didn't know Roberta personally in those days. I my I was a war boy, so I um, stood along the um, sandstone wall that's at the back of the um, Tet College at Darlinghurst near the courts. And a couple of times, Roberta came striding along to ask us boys questions, and we were terrified of her. Like, if, any, if you saw Roberta coming towards you, you sort of ran, because she was uncompromising. If she wanted an answer to a question, 
she wouldn't give up until she got it. And she did the same to government. Um, it would be the, the amount of emotional energy that goes into that is incredible. We try to be... Um, we are on... Yeah, I, I suppose we have taken on that uncompromising um, attitude in the work that we do. For example, decriminalisation, which is one of the things that Roberta um, tried to get established here in New South Wales, and we, we have almost full decriminalisation. We resist um, strongly to any attempt to roll it back or chip it away, and there have been a lot of those over the years, and you know, on that we're uncompromising. We will go down fighting until we are basically, yeah, we we're dead. You know, it's 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 like the, um, you know, you'll have to take a, the um, decriminalisation out of our cold dead hands if you want it back. Stay tuned for hip sister. So, yeah, that sort of thing is 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 part of her legacy. Um, her legacy is starting sex worker research and proper sex worker research that saw sex workers as real people and not sort of some pathological problem is probably her other great legacy apart from um, SWAP and Gender Centre and the reforms that came out of that. Yeah, do you want to talk just a little bit about SWAP and what you're doing there? SWAP and what? Yeah, sure. I, um, how much time do you have? Oh, just so, like a shorter swap. version. Yeah. Swap. Um, swap works as a peer education organisation. Um, peer education is something that sex workers um, were instrumental in starting or started to do and didn't actually know that they were doing something that had a name. Okay, it was started by people... Um, who Roberta had mentioned and people who were street-based sex workers and it was just street-based sex workers exchanging information with each other and information that helped them do their jobs better and in a way that was more safe and it became really important when HIV became an issue and peer education isn't somebody from SWAP standing in front of a group of sex workers and telling them what to do it's not didactic and it's a level playing field. It's somebody... Peer education is, for us, we go out... To, say if we go out to a brothel, we sit around in the ready room and we chat to the other workers because we're workers ourselves. And when everybody's comfortable, questions may or may not be asked about um, workplace rights, safe sex, um, legal matters, stuff like that, and... Information's exchanged, and we as outreach workers then file that away, and we also go to conferences and we get um, clinical training as well so that we know our subjects, and we combine all that with the conversation that we have with people in the next brothel or if they come here in, into SWAP and ask questions, we use all that information. So it's exchange of information um, by sex workers, um, by other sex workers, and we sort of form a conduit. Um, we do a lot of advocacy, advocacy as well, sorry, yeah. tripping over my words, and we also um, train other services who may come in contact with sex workers, like health services, um, police, fair work, anybody who um, is more likely than um, just news agents to come in contact with sex workers and who sex workers may be relying on for information so that then sex workers are treated as anybody else and not viewed by that person as um, pathologised. For example, we've had quite a lot of examples of sex workers who've gone to see a counsellor, maybe like a lot of people do, and when it comes to the question of what do you do for work and you say sex work, they've been told to go away get another job and come back then if that problem is still persisting because mm. it's more than likely that the sex work the sex work is causing that problem. And that's atrocious. Yeah. And that was Cameron Cox from the Sex Worker Outreach Project New South Wales in June twenty nineteen talking a bit about life and legacy of Roberta Perkins. And sex worker organizing, including peer support. 
And as we see more people talking about abolition, I guess in terms of the work of black abolitionists here in overseas calling our attention to the violence of policing and systemic oppression along with that white supremacy, anti-blackness. Yeah, I'm going to be shifting now to transformative justice. And hand in hand with talk of systemic change also goes mutual aid. And I'd like to shout out to supporting IRL InfoShop who are doing mutual aid work for many families through distributing grocery boxes, including to First Nations families who have pretty much nothing in these times. And in interest of full disclosure, I have been involved in a small way in that as well. Um, yeah, so now we're going to hear an excerpt from Transformative Justice, the Transformative Justice podcast, which is a great local resource for abolition and transformative justice conversations. We hear from Annalisa Fat, Petra Plegovich, and Alice McDonald. This was from mid-2019, so some information may be dated. The conversation talks a bit about the not-for-profit industrial complex in terms of the limitations of reform and not-for-profits and the necessity of social transformation. It sort of draws from the work undertaken by Insights, Women of Colour Against Violence in the US in the early 2000s. Some of the Insight material, one of the things that they say is the reliance on the criminal justice system has taken power away from, you know, people's ability to organise collectively to stop violence mm-hmm. and has invested this power within the state. So the result is that people who seek redress in the criminal justice system often feel disempowered and alienated. It also has promoted an individualistic approach towards ending violence such that the only way people think they can intervene in stopping violence is to things like calling the police means the reliance has shifted our focus from developing ways communities can collectively respond. And that's, you know, sort of what you were speaking to, Petra, of like it's the services sector has sort of taken that focus away from communities developing, you know, their own methods to address harm or their own languages around that and their own skills. Mm. Um, We sort of have designated those skills to a profession, Mm-hmm. as if they're, you know, people that are working in the services sector, which include all of us. Totally, um, we're not yeah. isolating ourselves from that, mm. but all of us three work in the service sector. But as if, you know, we or others are the only people who who can respond to family violence when we know that's not true. And, and, and yeah, and for, like, queer and trans people, like, we know that there's not there's no crisis service for yeah. um, queer, trans, like, gay, lesbian, bi people who are experiencing family violence. Like, there's no, for trans people, there's no, like, actually, like, safely trans-inclusive shelters for people to go to. There's, like, no service that is, like, truly trans-inclusive that, like, after midnight you can kind of, like, you know, or after 5pm mm. you can contact to sort of get some sort of assistance and even the services that exist are limited to like non-crisis situations so you know a lot of that work is like being done in community and done by survivors of violence themselves that's already happening there and a lot of that goes kind of unseen or unacknowledged or like is just you know is like I guess like isn't kind of held in a way that's empowering by communities because of the over-reliance and of all the resources that go into kind of the, the like, non-for-profit sector, which doesn't always kind of, like, act alongside what's happening in community mm. or acknowledge what's happening in community in that way. Completely. Like, often something that I hear, like, regularly in the service sector is this thing of, like, we need to do this research because this research is unknown. And I'm like, I'm like, no, 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 no. Communities are already doing this all of the time. This is how communities are responding to family violence, like mm-hmm. all around the world, because they have to, because they can't rely on the criminal legal system for all these different reasons. Totally. And so this research that you're currently undertaking right now, these people are already doing it. Well, it's like it's already been done. Yes. But people are really invested in this thing of being like there's no evidence and we really need this evidence that comes up through this, like, academic institution, which is so built upon white supremacy. 
And then it's sort of kind of, I guess, like for me, that's, you know, thinking about the work that's already been done and that already exists, like some of which, you know, we've like touched upon in the stuff that you've read, Annalise, um, makes me think, well, why why aren't people looking at that work that's already been done? And I guess, like, you know, the the answer <laughs> to that might be, I think there's this, like, especially, like, in a lot of whether it's, like, the service sector or mental health, there's this idea of being, you know, neutral, of the, like, professional being neutral. The professional is someone who is separate to the person, like, to the community, you know, like, separate to the communities that they serve is, like, this kind of, like, neutral space when actually mm. it's not the case. No one's neutral and people do are impacted by their privilege within, within like, white supremacy and, like, a cis-normative world that we live in and the ways in which that reflects the approaches and the interventions that they do in like the family violence space is huge. But I think like, you know, if, if it seems like a lot of the work that's been done already and that seems to be really kind of valuable is being done in community. And if there is a disconnect between the two, then it's important for people to ask questions why Hmm. and what does that mean? Yeah. And whose voices is, you know, the non-for-profit industrial complex silencing mm. and whose work is mm-hmm. being silenced or co-opted. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So I'm wondering, like, you know, one of the sort of things that we spoke about that the non-for-profit industrial complex does is, like, it individualises people. And I know one of the things that all of us are really interested in here is, like, connection and, like, I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts on, like, healing and connection and, like, your thoughts on healing in general? Like, what does that mean to you? I'll talk about two things, like, what it means to me and also I feel like what it means to a lot of people, Mm. um, you know, from working with people who have experienced violence to, you know, also seeing that happen in our communities. I feel like one thing that, you know, family violence and relationship violence really does is um, one big thing is, like, isolate people and make them feel like they don't have any options or connections to people maybe they once had. And I feel like for myself personally, whether it's, like, you know, related to, like, structural harms or interpersonal violence or family violence, what has sort of felt healing to me is one like making connections that I feel safe and good around and also then kind of like maybe like being a part of something that I feel is transformational as well so whether that's like community organizing or certain community events I feel like that is sort of like has been like key to my healing Mm. which seems a bit like contrary to a lot of the things that we hear about healing and that like um, I know other people have talked about whose probably name I can't remember right now like about healing having to happen like somewhere else you go away to heal and then you like kind of like mm. come back and you're like a product you know whereas like I, I guess it's been interesting for me like being actively healing within <laughs> you know doing projects or yeah yeah being connected I to people yeah totally like one of the things that, that came out of that Healing Justice podcast of this quote, I can't remember the exact quote, but essentially I very much resonated with it, which was that like community organizing is healing. Mm-hmm. And for me, like very much like having action around like the things that like I've personally experienced has been healing for me. Mm-hmm. And like one of the, I guess, like things in like a social justice or like critical pedagogies framework would be that like many people that have experienced harm in a multitude of ways also want to work together to resist and to challenge that, totally. to challenge the oppressive structures. But often like, you know, things, for example, in like individual therapy, we don't often get to that, right? Like that's not um, really a function of individual therapy. And so I wonder, like one of the questions is like, to everybody, like including ourselves, when we're thinking about this work is like, how are you connecting people to others in the same situation? And if we're not doing that, then why aren't we doing that? Mm. And that was Annalise Arfat, Petra Bogovich and Alice McDonald on the Transformative Justice podcast, which aired on 3CR Satellite Skies last year. You can find the rest of that episode at Transformative Justice podcast on Mixcloud as well as the nine other episodes there. I will provide a link in the show notes to this podcast at 3cr.org 
twitch.tv.au forward slash Queering the Air. You can hear Queering the Air every Sunday from 3 to 4pm and check out our podcast at that same address, 3cr.org.au forward slash Queering the Air. If you have any feedback or suggestions, you can message us on our Facebook or Twitter. Also, give us a like or follow, or follow there. If not over social media, you can also shoot us an email at queeringtheair at gmail.com. Stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial, digital and on demand. It's no good for me. I don't want you. I don't want you, baby. Heterosexuality. It's no good for me. She said, see Dr. Brad, he'll let you know if he's straight or a fag At the doctor's office, I expose my orifice So Dr. Brad can see straight or a counterfeit Mid-slam, he said, damn Damn, boy, this is queer ass shit Not to mention it, sniff a rabbit habit Damn, boy, this is queer ass shit Not to mention it, sniff a rabbit habit Rabbit habit, it's more addictive than cabbage Don't mind the front, but prefer the back cabin in the puck off the dock Take a quick stab at it, queer picky pink thing shit is having it. Rabbit have me too veg in the pop. Wanna get off, but you're in the shops. No cops, but you know that the law ain't soft. So you spare the chicken, chicken, screw the neutral grid box. Rabbit had it, takes over your consciousness. Wake up in the morning, what's the point in getting dressed? When your thighs are on fire and your eyes are gyrating. Salivating dick and your lips are masturbating. Rabbit had it, saw some in from the boy. Shove his head in the pillow cause he's making too much noise. Oi. Neighbors are planning, helicopters overhead. Try to have a lot of this, you'll be fucking when you're dead. Your girls are cool, your girls are tease, man. Rabbit up's a handicap. They don't take it seriously Ladies and gentlemen It's beyond a joke When you're about to poke They're up in smoke yeah. Blokes on the other hand A handy when you need a hand A happy slap upon the back And bend it down And give it that The cool that They give it back Being facts a happy fact One thing that no good for me It's heterosexuality yeah. Isolated? Quarantined? Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid NAM is a new mutual aid group of organised volunteers. We're here, we're queer and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid Nam Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.